Hello and welcome to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast special, uh, I believe, number five. We're going to go with that, see what happens. Uh, with me tonight is Mac. Hey, everybody. And Ian. Evening. And Kimberly. Hello. So we, we just finished re- recording our uh, interview with uh, Tara Rutley. Tara? Dr. Tara? Doctor. Yes, doctor. Yes. And, and Mac was very diligent about always saying doctor. Uh, until the end. <laughs> until I told her about the dick jokes, right? No, actually, I I kind of stuck my foot in it, but I was trying to be respectful. No, I mean, she she was a lot of fun. We we had a good time. I think this she is was, a she was excellent. She was absolutely yeah. fantastic. Um, Very both charismatic. And one of Brian's daughters got to ask questions. Yeah, her. yeah, and of course they both you know gravity was the the big uh, big thing on our kids' minds. Certainly. So. And we've discovered that mice can create their own artificial gravity. <laughs> so listen to the interview. And we hope you enjoy it. Yes, and. Uh, we and of course this uh, this will be in replace for our normal episode and so we'll see you in two weeks. This is Tara. Hey Tara, this is um Brian Heinesser from the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. Yes, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you speaking? I'm doing good. Um, I, I've also got uh, Kimberly on the line, who I hope believe you've okay. spoken with. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. How you doing? Good. And I have a uh, um our our other two podcast members. I have Ian and also hi. um I have uh, Mac with us. And your name, I'm sorry, you say John? Brian. Brian, Brian. Okay, great. Yeah, so uh, thank you for joining us this evening. I, um, I, I guess, so you did a, uh, a talk at the um, Botanic Gardens. Is that, that's where Kim saw you? Right. Yeah, we were there um, as part of a big team effort of several of us from JS or Johnson Space Center. Uh, NASA were up in Denver a few weeks ago promoting uh, our exhibit called Destination Station that's uh, we were at the uh, Wings Over the Rockies set up there through the month of October, I believe. So several of us went out to uh, try to do, do some outreach programs with the public. So anyone who cared to come and listen, we were there. <laughs> That's neat. So now I, I was looking over uh, your bio. I mean, so you, your title is uh, International Space Station Associate Program Scientist. Correct. That, 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 that's a lot of words. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so what do you do? Yeah, I laugh and I say, okay, it means nothing to anybody outside of NASA because it's, it's a long title. So basically, um, we have a, an Office of Program Scientists for Space Station here at uh, NASA. And so our office is responsible for um, coordinating the, the science that happens on space station um, with the principal investigators, uh, coordinating with our international partners because they have research as well. Um, let's see, we, we uh, communicate the scientific what kind of the scientific hotness that's going on in the, uh, the the research community to NASA headquarters and try to make sure we're on our game uh, with regard to cutting edge. And then we also communicate the results and, and the happenings of what's happening on our laboratory up, up on orbit with the public. So um, so I'm the associate program scientist. Uh, Julie Robinson is the chief program scientist, and I'm her deputy in the office. So uh, so we have a really good time um, within the office just uh, working solely on space station research. That is pretty cool. Now, so you, um, you, you went to school here in Colorado. You, you got two degrees here in Colorado, uh, yeah. a bachelor's of, uh, of science and biology and a master's in science and mechanical engineering. And so, th- and that's what got you started and got you your job with NASA. Is that right? No, it, it was, it was obviously a big, a big part of it, but I wanted to, um, work for NASA since I was a, a little kid. So for as long as I can remember. So, um, my love had all, actually already been in science more than engineering. And so I was headed down a path towards science, um, knowing that one day I wanted to work for NASA. And, um, 
And so what happened was when I was an undergraduate at Colorado State University, I got uh, I, I started participating with the AIAA chapter there, which is the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics for students. And I was the only science major in that group. They were all engineers, and they were doing something, you know, something with vehicles and, and rockets and launching. And I had a different interest, and my interest was in development of an exercise machine for use in space, for resistive exercise. Because the body, the body muscles, they, they, it's kind of use or lose. And when you're in space, if you don't use your muscles, you start to lose them, just like you would here on Earth if you suddenly stopped exercising. So I went down that path, and um, and that got me into the space community they wanted to be involved in. But since it was the development of an exercise machine, I realized as I was going down my degree program in biology and I was working this project in my senior year, um, I realized to make that concept come alive into reality that uh, it was real important to get a good understanding of the engineering. I, I found myself wanting to create and, and create a prototype and, and we ultimately ended up doing that as students and testing it on the Vomit Comet which is a parabolic flight airplane at NASA. So so in that whole endeavor as a student in biology, I realized an interdisciplinary approach is a, is the smartest way, and, and it's actually a really fun way to get your ideas across from, from just conception to, you know, to, to bring it to fruition. And, and while I was down at uh, Johnson Space Center for one of these parabolic flights with uh, my team for, for our uh, exercise machine to test it in little microgravity um, parabolic arcs, there was a job there, and um, I submitted my resume, and they just happened to be hiring, NASA just happened to be hiring for biomedical engineers <laughs> in a new division they were starting up. So it was a little bit of, um, <laughs> obviously, it was it was very much preparation and very much timing, and and, and as all those things came together, that's how I ended up uh, in my first eight years at Johnson Space Center as an engineer. And then in the last two years, I, I, um, I switched to uh, science. I, I, I obtained my PhD in neuroscience down here at the University of Texas Medical Branch uh, while I was working as an engineer at NASA. So I completed that in, in 07 and have been in the Office of Space Station Science ever since. So it's been really, really, really fun being here. That's cool. awesome. Yeah, Just that is following awesome. your dream like that and having it all line up. That's so cool. Yeah, you know, the coolest thing about it is it's just that it was all just fun. You know, it was just doing fun things that you love, and, and it just, just kept coming. So now what, um, that, that project was at the uh, Continuous Force Resistance Exercise Unit? Yes, that's the Constant Force Resistance Exercise Unit, yep. And that one actually... Um, Led us to a patent, and uh, so um, pretty neat. We got to do a lot of fun things with that that machine, and it was part of my it was my master's thesis. And um, so yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, Brian, Brian's been good this week. He did his homework for you. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was the question? No. no, it wasn't a question. It was a statement. Brian, he actually did his homework on you. Well, the rest of us kind of were slackers this time. Oh. Um, <laughs> Doctor Rutley, as I understand that the constant resistant force the the unit you designed, essentially it's basically it's giving somebody to work something to work against that's not gravity since gravity is not available. Right. And so when you're in uh space and there's microgravity, very little, very, very little gravity, then you're right. It, it, you can't you don't really use the muscles that you use here on Earth. You use regularly, you don't even think about. So in space counter that muscle wasting, they, they'd like an exercise device that could provide like a wasting routine. And since you're in microgravity, you don't get that gravity vector, so weights are useless. They just kind of float around. So you need something else um, to provide that resistance. And then um, the scientists, or the flight doctors, they wanted that in a constant force. 
So just like what you see in a um, weight stacking here on the ground, which would be a contraforce. And um, that's a challenge because most springs are not contraforce. Most springs increase in resistance as you stretch them. And it's the same with rubber bands. So um, when we were students, we had identified springs that are already on the market, and they're just called contraforce springs. And so as you, as you pull on them, they maintain a nearly constant force. And then as they retract, uh, they retract in on a nearly constant force speed. So you get, you get um, constant force on the upstroke and the downstroke. What's the durability of those constant force springs? Yeah, the durability is, you know, it, it varies. And, and the biggest challenge there is if you want a greater life cycle on a spring, the spring gets larger and larger. Right? You have to always give up something in favor of something else. So right. it's, it's a challenge between modularity and size and weight, which is what you want to aim for when you're, you're thinking about space flight, lighter, smaller, more portable versus the force output and the cycle life that you also need out of an exercise machine. So, so the springs vary on cycle life, um, given their, depending on the size. And, um, NASA has varied their requirements, um, in terms of the next generation exercise machine that they'd like to see on the next vehicle because they weren't sure what the next vehicle was going to be for, um, a little while. So, um, once that, once, once the community gets their mindset back into place and thinking about, um, what the next generation exercise machine would be for the next vehicle, then, um, it'd be a lot more clear as to whether mine would even fall into the competition category anymore these days or, or whether something new and improved has come along with them. Sure. So, I, so, I mean, I guess this leads us, I mean, that there's definitely a lot of special requirements for, for medical co- equipment in space. Is it, wouldn't that be the case? Oh yeah, yes. Um, so, so for my first eight years, I was a flight uh, hardware lead for the health maintenance system at NASA, and that is a system that consists of all the medical equipment for crew, and that includes the emergency medical equipment. And just like um, any kind of light hardware that you that you space station, they all have to go through rigorous certification before you even make it on orbit. So that's things like um, special materials selected for you know they're not non flammable and for quality. Uh, persistent and for um, for off gas and you know materials that are going to off wall horrible toxic toxic germs into the closed atmosphere of the space station. And we do things like um, vibration testing. They have to survive. They can't be too noisy. They can't be too um, they can't get too hot. So they're thermal. They got to be able to resist um, EMI and so electromagnetic interference and and, and uh, the launch environment, uh, the landing impact environment. So there's all kinds of um, documents and paperwork and testing and integration tests um, that and human factor tests that have to go into just getting just the basic piece of like hardware space station so so that we're we're very confident that it's a quality product and it's very safe for the crew on orbit. And so then, yeah, when you're talking health equipment, that's even more critical. And so in the, with the health equipment, um, most of what's up there right now is uh, commercial off-the-shelf modified. Um, certain things can't exist in the, and can't be operated in the form that there are on Earth, um, same way that they are on space stations. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, gravity, uh, gravity-fed items, for example, IV bags on the ground. They're usually gravity-fed to the user. Uh, but in case they, they'll use the peristaltic pumps, and then there's a certain level of it's being paid to, you know, the right types of pumps that don't create bubbles in the systems and can promote fluid flow, and, and um, you know, even the pill bottles are designed so that when you open up a pill bottle, all the pills don't go flying out, and so there are lots of different um, modifications to current currently existing um, hardware that is already used on the ground. Hmm. So I, I guess the uh, the most exciting exercise machine has got to be the combined operational load bearing external resistance treadmill. 
He was a cold bear. <laughs> we got it. We came up with a good one for that one. Yeah, that, that, that is quite an acronym. Yes. We stretched that one. Uh, yeah, the uh, generation treadmill, right? And it actually is quite popular. But we appreciated the support from Colbert because, you know, we can use the support anywhere we can get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, what is the life expectancy of the International Space Station? Yeah, very good question. So right now. Um, we are mandated to um, expand the life of space station to 2020, and internally we're kind of looking forward to potentially 2028 as well. So while we are set for 2020, we always are looking ahead and, and preparing and, and thinking that far out 2028. That's internal, though. That's not really official. Okay. Are there plans on what will replace it? Are there plans to replace it? Is that the question? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, no, no, there isn't. I mean, <laughs> so once it's done, it's done, I, I suppose, and we move on to the next thing. And it would be nice to be able to work two programs parallel. At one point, we had three programs for a few years. We had Space Shuttle, Space Station, and um, Constellation, and now we're down to one. This is an interesting thing with the Space Station, and currently just kind of redesigning and refocusing the whole Constellation effort as to what comes next after Space Station. That's the big question, and so we're in a we're in a climate of change, as you've probably heard in the news and right. seen in the media. Right. Um, but uh, but we know that space station is a pretty permanent thing, and and, and actually space space station will be used as as that point to get us to whatever the next thing will be. So I mean, are you is I mean, right now, of course, we're depending on the the, the Russian space shuttle program, um, which recently I guess that they've had some issues. Is is that correct? Yeah, it was a it was a strange thing, you know. <laughs> uh, in September, they they launched their progress vehicle, which is an unmanned cargo vehicle that they've been launching forever and ever and ever, and especially the space station the last 10, 11 years. And um and they lost one. Yes, it left the launch pad and and um, kind of uh, blew up just about five minutes within in the launch. Pretty, pretty much lost everything that was on that vehicle, which for us wasn't critical. We had positioned ourselves pretty well with the final shuttle flight. Uh, in terms of uh, resupply and for research, so it wasn't too too incredibly critical, but it it did. It was a shock because that had never ever ever happened before on a progress vehicle. And um, you know there was the unfortunate timing that you know can't get past the fact that it just so happened on the first launch following the shuttle retirement, right? right. So it's kind of like couldn't get any worse timing wise, you know. So, so we were all raising our eyebrows and trying to figure out uh, what that was about. And the, our Russian partners said, you know, spring into action right away, identified the problem in one of the boosters. And uh, that booster is uh, the motor within the second, I think it's the second stage booster. I hope I'm getting that right. Um, I'm not a vehicle expert, but uh, I, yeah, that's what okay. I understand. Yeah, the second stage booster in the progress, it shares the same um, booster motor in the Soyuz vehicle, which is the manned version of this, what we use to send astronauts to the space station. So, um, so there's a lot of um, investigation going on um, within, our, within uh, our agency and our Russian partner agency to make sure that we're comfortable with with using the next Soyuz vehicle to get a, to get any any of the astronauts at the space station. And there's uh, I believe there was a um, there's a series of pretty major meetings that happened I believe this week, and I'm on the status of that. And I quite honestly tell you, I don't know the status. You might be reading the news. You might be more up on it than I am. Um, internally, we we um, we're, we're looking ahead to, to you know to maintaining at least a three person crew. We're trying. We are planning for worst case to be manning, but not expecting it at all. But of course, you always have to uh, plan for the worst case so that you can um, you can be as flexible as possible. But our risk partners, as far as I know, the last I heard, things were looking good. They'd identified the root cause. We're going down the path of 
of um, fixing that problem before their next launch. They wanted to get two launches under their belt of that kind of a, a motor uh, again before um, sending any of the astronauts back or cosmonauts back to space station on that on that vehicle. What is the life expectancy of their shuttle program? I mean, are, are they are they looking at, to replace their shuttle, or are, are they just planning to use the, the Soyuz forever? Uh, you know what? I can honestly say I've never heard anything about Soyuz retirement. Okay. So if, if there are those discussions, um, they haven't come across my desk. Well, I, I haven't, I, yeah, I haven't heard them either, so... Yeah, okay. So yours is the first time anyone's ever asked you that. Yeah, well, it just it just occurred to me though. I mean, we end of life our shuttle program, you know. So I mean, maybe they would be thinking that maybe theirs is aging as well. So it just seems like if we're thinking about it, maybe they might be as well. Quite possibly. Although the difference between the two vehicles is the fact that the only reasonable part on there is the capsule, right? And for right. us, it was most everything. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was the boosters. It was a, well, ours was a definitely more complicated machine. And mm-hmm. the Russians, you know, call theirs a good old standby, you know. And so, uh, but, but that's a good question. I, I don't know. I guess it's something for me to just personally look at because I've never thought about it before. Sure. No, I guess, uh, you know, so we have some commercial space entities that, that are looking that might be able to, to help us out with the Dragon SpaceX capsule be, be one of those options. Oh, yeah. We have actually, um, had SpaceX, both SpaceX, uh, and Orbital under, uh, in SpaceX agreements with, with NASA since I think 2007 and 08, respectively. And, um, so they've been marching down the path for years, uh, and developing an unmanned cargo uh, resupply vehicle for space station. And both of them are slated to demonstrate a docking to space station, I believe it's December or at least early spring. I believe that at least SpaceX, I think both of them are targeted for December. So it'll be pretty busy. It'll be a pretty busy um, season. And uh, we're looking forward to their demonstration of docking. And, you know, I've been in the office for two years, and throughout that time that um, that I've been here, I've seen them develop and I've seen them grow, and they're committed. And our our office feels really confident in um, in these in these build in these startups. And uh, you know, they fronted a lot of their own funding. NASA fronted a lot of our funding to get this off the ground, and it's a really good. Test case, I think it's a really good indicator that uh, the commercial entities could potentially pull off the future, which is the manned version of these vehicles. So I have confidence in the in the uh, commercial sector of this. Mm-hmm. So do you see that as where the future is then for um, space exploration? Um, yeah, I think um, I think in the future it'll be an interesting thing. I, I don't know who will get the crew um, commercial contracts, but ideally there will be a few options for us and, and a few different companies, commercial companies, um, building manned vehicles. And it would be really a, a cool thing if NASA had the option to pick and choose kind of which vehicles we wanted to launch with, uh, when, for which missions, and just to meet our different space station needs, our, our different exploration needs. So, um so ideally, we'll have a, a lot, a lot to choose from. And then, um, NASA is really also concurrently building, you know, our Orion vehicle. And, uh, the, I think last month, um, NASA announced that there will be a, uh, they announced the, the selection of their rocket that will go with that capsule. So now they're marching down the path and saying that NASA will have its own, um, launch vehicle now for, uh, hopefully testing its first launch in the year 2020, 2015. So I think, and you know, we'll have a, you know, I'll have this little short gap, and it's not the first time in history it's happened, but it's just that we're all here in recent history, and so we're all feeling it. But, um, but I'm feeling really good about, you know, having options uh, with all these vehicles come to development. Dr. Rutley, is there anything being explored other than rocket propulsion? Oh, um, 
you mean for vehicle-wise or? Vehicle-wise, uh, getting us to space, anything. Well, I, I, I'm stepping outside of my realm a little bit because I'm mostly uh, yeah. in, in, involved in space station, but I, I have heard about the asteroid missions. I honestly need to get smart on those because I don't, I don't fully grasp what the uh, goals are of these asteroid missions, although I do know that I understand that the orbital mechanics of approaching and landing on one of these things is a challenge, and then potentially test different types of tools once you get to one. Um, so I know that there's some kind of asteroid plans going on. I'm not quite sure beyond that myself, quite honestly. I know the plans for Space Station are to use Space Station as a test bed for um, analogs for um, moon or Mars visits, um, running simulations, long duration phase types of uh, uh, different scenarios on Space Station, testing new types of technology for advancing beyond Space Station. That's not all that I know in terms of what's being explored. I'm, I'm sure there's tons out there. Sure. And I'm just, so I'm just not bright enough about all that. All that fun no, that, that's okay. We're, I mean, we're certainly asking questions that are outside of your field because, you know, well, because you're from NASA, so we just expect you to answer everything. Uh, but I mean, but <laughs> we should get, but I, I guess I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the science experiments that are happening on the space, uh, on the space station, because you've talked uh, in some of the interviews, you, you've gone into that a little bit more about what it takes to set up and, and, uh, produce a, um, uh, one of these, um, uh, experiments in space. So, so what is going on on the station right now, up on the space station as far as science experiments? So space station right now, well, and, and surprising fact that it is really is at any one given time in any week um, and any increment and any set period of time, you would have nearly 150 investigations running over you know a period of six months, which is pretty fascinating to me. And I didn't even realize those numbers until I came to work in the office. And uh, and I'm thinking, really, we're doing all that? I had no clue. And even today, so so the first 10 years of space station was really about you know vehicle assembly. And, and and still we were getting a little bit of research done. wasn't a lot of research. It'd be kind of like you being a scientist and you're trying to get your research done in a laboratory that you haven't even built yet, or being a doctor and you're trying to treat patients in a hospital you haven't even finished building yet. Um, so so the astronauts in the first 10 years you know, on orbit were just really, and, and rightly so, associated with and involved in and the vehicle assembly component part of it. So um, now that the vehicle assembly is complete, we are smack in the middle of a change period. And this last year has been a huge change in um, in just what's going on on space station as we see things move from vehicle assembly to crew time being invested more in, in the actual research that's happening. So even in the first 10 years when the research was um, definitely low in the number of hours per week and it was more of a focus on vehicle, you still got nearly you know, somewhere around 1,400 investigations done over that 10-year period and represented you know, around almost 1,000 scientists from around the world even and resulted in nearly 300 uh, scientific publications. And so even that portfolio over the, over the first 10 years is only representative of about 20% of the capability of research that space station can handle before its 2020 time period. So it's, it's a lot and it's still not, <laughs> it's still not even potentially there. So, um, so we're looking forward to now, now that we have six crew, well, we will, the idea here is to have six crew people, uh, crew members on orbit at any one given time. Right now there are only three as we're in transition between increments. 
Um, but the, the six-person crew, the vehicle assembly crew has definitely very obviously been spending more of their hours performing research on orbit. And our office feels that because we, we get the results that come in. We get to see, um, here from principal investigators, we get to see what's happening on orbit. Um, and we get busy, busy, busy in coordinating all the science. And all the science that happens on space station. Space station is a laboratory, you know, like nothing you've seen on the ground. In that, it's just so multidisciplinary. You know, there's nowhere here on on the Earth that you would find a facility, a laboratory facility that would have physical sciences, life sciences, human physiology research, and um, educational components, and um, you know, all the bio and biotech technology and demonstration. All of that, all of those different laboratory capabilities in one huge facility. And then, even cooler than that, is the fact that now you have this gravity vector that's gone. So we've got all these different things using it, and they're all going to create hypotheses around the fact that um, XYZ happens in the act of gravity. Because gravity is, is what we've grown up learning about our whole lives. So the human body develops and functions the way it does because of that gravity vector and the physics that's so predictable and that we know are going to happen with motion and fluid flow. It's all based on the fact that we understand that gravity vector, 9.81 meters per second squared. And so we've never never been able to take that, that variable away. And in science, when you're doing an experiment, you can take all the other variables and manipulate them and see what happens. But the one you can't really remove for a long period of time is gravity. And so you can theorize. And that's what we've done. Um, but these days now with Space Station, you have a laboratory where you can think of any, pretty much anything you can think of that's affected by microgravity. You can test it out. You can test it out over a long period of time, months or years, versus just short days, short number of days, or even if you're talking about parabolic flights or drop towers here on the Earth, you're looking at just a few seconds worth of information. So with Space Station, you, ha- you can take this gravity vector away, find out what happens differently. And not only that, but if you're a scientist, you like repeatability, too. So when you're on the ground and you're in your laboratory as a scientist, you don't do one experiment one time. You do multiple different numbers of experiments that tell you something about your overall investigation and you get you different results that, that drive the next experiment so you get to your answers. And so the space station presence will give the scientists that capability and that they can repeat their experiments over and over again to and driven by different um, results with experiment, modify a little bit and give them time to tell a complete story of their overall investigation and come to an answer regarding their hypothesis. So it's a really neat, unique laboratory. Obviously, I can't say enough about it because I love right. it. It's pretty fascinating and um, so many things that change uh, when you take that gravity vector away. No, I have a, a, I think this is a tweet and it has your name attached to it. What happens in space stays in space unless it's peer-reviewed? Oh. <laughs> yes. You know, I came from um, a tweet-up. I was a speaker at a tweet-up. You know, inevitably, someone always asked me the question about, um, how should we put it, mammal reproduction in space. <laughs> and I said, you know what? <laughs> I can tell you on the book right now, uh, what happens in space stays in space unless it's peer-reviewed. Okay. So it hasn't been peer-reviewed. We know nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, essentially, because because I didn't I didn't quite understand what the quote was uh you know referring to, and I I, I hadn't uh, associated it with mammal reproduction. Uh, yes, and, it uh, tells a whole different it, story. Yeah, and then when I said it, it just went viral. I guess people <laughs> picked up their phones and started tweeting that one. I'm like, geez, <laughs> okay, I'll make a T-shirt too because it's kind of a kind of a I get I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess the next thing we'll get is people on the International Space Station with a sign saying, Occupy Orbit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you never know, right? <laughs> Uh, so are we um okay. um I, I have a question. Uh-huh. Are we are we gonna make it back to the moon? Oh, you know what? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think anybody does. I have to, I haven't read the news lately. Um uh no um honestly it's right, it's no pun intended, it's kinda of up in the air right now. I'm sure even who knows? Asteroid asteroids on our radar, so to speak. Gosh, I'm just filling all of these statements with puns. it's unintended, but I don't know. That's a good question. I could have told you what the answer would have been two or three years ago. <laughs> Ian, remember the rule. You were not allowed to ask her about the Autobot spaceship crashed on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I could tell you, but then, you know. My guess is part of her job is to make sure we only know what we're allowed to know. We can't find out about, out about the reptoids and the Area 51 and all that stuff. She's not allowed to talk about that, I'm sure. <laughs> That's right, sir. We're the government. We're here to help. So, uh, <laughs> That's it's for your own good that you only know what I'm telling you to know. Well, and <laughs> there's an interesting question. Do you spend a lot of time, to, um, you know, with people and, and their conspiracy theories, like the aliens uh, on the dark side of the moon and stuff like that? You know, surprisingly, no. It, you know, it, it actually depends on. Yeah, you know what? Maybe it might come up at an, at an airplane ride if I'm sitting next to someone, or um, or it depends on where I might go to an event stage, and it depends on the crowd. But surprisingly, no. And I just probably get passersby saying little things that, that I'm like, oh, interesting. And um, I found myself listening to a podcast, I want to say about a year or two ago. I don't even remember what it was or who it was. And I was fascinated by what they were claiming, you know, that NASA never went to the moon. And I'm like, let me listen to what the arguments are for this again. And I was like, whoa, now those are interesting. And, you know, being on the inside, I don't have any top secret information, but sometimes um, sometimes the, the media or those out there give the government too much credit because sometimes they're just not that capable of being that elaborate. <laughs> but I could be wrong. You yeah. just never know. I'm, I'm with you on that one. I probably know just as much as you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's John Stewart that says that uh, that the government is incapable of keeping any secret. That eventually it's going to leak out. So I don't think I want to know everything the government knows. Though. Well, I, I don't not. know. It's a, <laughs> it's a catch twenty-two. <laughs> Doctor Rutley, I'm not sure if this is uh, something you know that much about or not. I I saw the health maintenance system and I thought, ooh, life support. And then I realized afterwards that my question was kind of off topic. But how self-sustaining is the International Space Station? How well does it recycle its, uh, you know, air, food, everything else? How how much does it need to be resupplied? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'll tell you what I know, and um, I know that it, it, you know, it obviously recycles its own air. What I think I know is that it it pulls from the air condensate or sweat. Um, it recycles the urine uh, into everything, and it pulls into to create drinking water from that. Okay. So um, that's a relatively new. The, the relatively new system is the urine conversion part of it. I believe that went up a year or two ago, and um, maybe even just a year ago. Um, but they also can they also supplement they supplement with water on the progress site. They uh, definitely supplement food. Uh, there's no plant grown. There's no plants grown for food, for example. So all of their food is resupplied um, regularly with progress sites. There's unmanned vehicles. 
Um, and the air, yeah, recycled. Um, water is tested for toxins. The air is tested regularly for the presence of toxins. Um, obviously, small portable systems, I'm sorry, not small portable systems, but powerless systems that are lightweight. There's a core in the, in the water recycling system of space station, and, and it's got these things called microbial check valves that, that, that use a certain type of resin to clean the water and, and to add um, iodine to the water for health. And um, just the basis of that, which was created for space station, was actually taken and um, made a spinoff, so to speak, by a company on the ground who's now started creating these little water recycling systems that are deployed, can be deployed all over the, the globe in humanitarian relief zones where, you know, the access to potable water is really not available, whether either it's an earthquake or it's just the, the state of the community. And so it's a powerless system, it's gravity fed, where we've got these little resin beads inside of it that can clean the water and also provide iodine level, a certain iodine level of water too. So, so as far as that goes, that's not the extent that I know, although I Although I, I heard with the urine recycling system, there was actually extensive testing happening at Johnson Space Center for years leading up to that. And, uh, and it, it did consist of uh, volunteers offering up samples and, <laughs> and processing those samples. And, and uh, I understood it made it a, a long way and finally got certified to fly. So uh, it was a, quite an interesting thing when it happened. Can you well, talk a little bit more about the unmanned flights? I, I didn't really know that there were any going up and, and how do they work and... How often oh, are they going? Sure. Yeah, um, so there are lots of different unmanned flights. So the Russians have these things called progress vehicles, and their rockets and the insides are loaded, just loaded with goods. And they go up, they um, deliver cargo. They go up about every, that's pretty frequent, three to four months or so, maybe even more frequent than that. I, I've lost track, frankly, because they, they come and go so quickly. Um, they, they send things up, and then the crew can load trash in, back into it, and then it comes down and burns up on reentry. So it doesn't return anything, but it, it launches things up and then burns up the trash. And so that's Russian. And then the other um, unmanned vehicle would be the ATV, the Automatic Transfer Vehicle, and that's from ESA, the European Space Agency. They've flown only one of those, and they're, I believe they're scheduled to fly their second one early in the early next year, I think early 2012, I think in the spring, and they too can launch cargo up but can't return. So they burn up on reentry tracks and things that we don't need anymore. And then there's a third vehicle that is the HPV, and um, that is JAXA, our Japanese uh, space agency partner. And um, it, it too is an unmanned cargo vehicle. It can send goods up and um, return, and, and it can't return. It burns up on reentry. It, it too has only flown once, so its second flight will be in... Um, in June, I think it just got moved to June 2012. So ATV and HTV definitely don't fly as frequently. Progress flies really regularly, and those are the three unmanned vehicles. Now SpaceX and Orbital, when those vehicles um, come up uh, and they start, they do their demo flights in December, those are the NASA vehicles, and they too will be unmanned. SpaceX will have the capability to return things to Earth, which is good for our research samples. Orbital will burn up on reentry. So at least we will have some return capability, which is important for things like blood and saliva and, and just plant samples and, and things that need to, that have shelf life that need to come home for analysis. Well, is, cause didn't on the last shuttle, um, last shuttle that went up carried a lot of seeds and stuff that are planned to be grown and then they have to be grown to a certain point and then frozen and they can't be returned right away. Is that, is that true? That's true. They can be frozen or they can fixated, um, fixated with a certain type of fixative. And, and, and basically what you're doing is you're just stopping their growth because usually, um, what the scientists are looking at here are, um, 
you know, gene expression patterns or um, root growth patterns that, that are just that are, that's okay if you stop the sample right there. They're, they may not be necessarily looking for other other things that you would associate with fresh plants, like the nutrients or off gas byproducts or things like that. So, so yeah, you can freeze them or fix them. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, actually, if we can, my son would like to ask you a question. Okay, good. Okay. Okay, just come right up there. Okay, go ahead. Hi. Um. So, um, is there any clues to artificial gravity? Oh, any clues to artificial gravity? Yes, that's what he asked. Yeah. Okay, that's the question. Yes. Okay. So, um, so artificial gravity. What we can do, what we, what we actually do on space station, is we can create artificial gravity, but not for humans. We can do it for plants by use of small centrifuges, similar to what you hear on the ground in a laboratory, not the thick ones that you would, you imagine when you think of people inside of a centrifuge that creates artificial gravity. But we can do that on the space station because what we can do with that then is, for example, we might take plant seeds that are growing. We want to see how they start to grow in microgravity. Then we might want to give them just a little bit of centrifugation and see how they grow in half of half a G. And then maybe we want to go to three-fourths G, maybe to one G, then take it all the way up to G and just look at the different gradients of gravity vectors and how that affects something like a plant. And there's, um, you can do that, um, we, mostly we do that with plants. There's been talks of doing that with mice, but we haven't done that and we may not be doing that for a really long time because it's a lot more complicated with animals. And there's no plans to actually do that for humans on the space station. So, um, so, so we come up with other countermeasures to artificial gravity and that seems like exercise that keeps our, our people safe. And you wouldn't want the whole laboratory to have artificial gravity because then you would kind of ruin the experiments that we want to use, you know, that we want to look for what happens when you take gravity away. It's a really tricky situation and a fine line to walk. Um, but it's a really good question too. It's funny because Quinn's question and, and I asked my daughter, um, if she had a question and her question was, is there even the slight bit of gravity in space? Yeah, sure. Yeah, there is. There's um, microgravity. So when you hear the term zero gravity, that's incorrect, and it's used a lot. But, you know, as, as the space station's orbiting the Earth, it's still within gravity's pull. Gra- you know, the Earth is spinning, and it's creating that gravitational pull. So anything inside that Earth's orbit is actually still being pulled down to Earth. So, so the space station is free falling, and if you really were to take an accelerometer and measure that gravity vector, there is still some amount of gravity, and that's why it's called microgravity. Um, Ten to the minus six is, is the micro part of it, and um, and what you get is, you know, the space station. If it keeps orbiting and orbiting and orbiting the Earth, um, you get a drag you, because there's still that uh, gravity vector. Um, the space station would eventually fall and fall right back down to Earth if it didn't get a boost up occasionally from a, whether a visiting vehicle can give it a boost as it's attached or it can actually boost itself up because it has propellant on board. So, um, so yeah, so there is a certain level of, of gravity on orbit and uh, it's, a, it's at the micro level. So to get zero gravity, you've got to get much further away then. Yes, you'd have to completely break out of the Earth's um, orbital gravity well. Yeah, gravity all. Yep. All right. I just think it's interesting that both of our kids had had gravity questions. (laughs) Cool questions. Yeah. (laughs) They spend too much time together. I think is the problem. (laughs) Well, and even even if you got out of 
<laughs> oh, sorry. No, go If ahead. you got out of Earth orbit, wouldn't you still be in the sun's gravitational pull? Yeah, I was going to say, no matter where you are, I think you don't completely get away with it because there are these bodies all over. So um, um, I don't really know what the final that would be before that actually, <laughs> theoretically, before that actually took place. Someone out there is smart enough to know, though I bet. Some, I'm sure someone figured that one out. Okay, thank you. So you said uh, you were thinking about doing uh, artificial gravity experiments on mice, but you don't know if that's going to happen or not. Right, because they're just a, a complex animal, and the machinery that would be required to support them, and and in the centrifuge that would be required to to support them, and still ensure that they're healthy, and you could measure all their variables like their heart rate and their you know their um, their body temperature and things like that, just to ensure their their safety and well-being is is a complicated matter. So if there much were more complicated critical, than a plant. yes, exactly, much more complicated than a plant. Now, if there were critical science um, value to it. It would definitely be um, investigated and looked into. And as of right now, there's just been no um, no big no major scientific push as of yet. Not to say it won't happen, because we have certainly until 2020, um, and it potentially could go that way. As of right now, we I don't think it's coming yet. Can't the mice create their own artificial gravity with the little wheel anyway, though? <laughs> yeah, you would think they could. <laughs> they, they could, but then I imagine it would make some scientists cranky somewhere when they didn't stop or when they didn't go when they wanted them to or something <laughs> like that. So those guys are hard to control. <laughs> huh. I, You know, I, I, I guess this, this is going way back, but um, I, I heard the, uh, the Nemo project mentioned. Uh-huh. That, that was one of your earlier projects, right? Yes, I mean, it's so funny because someone came into my office today and and said, oh, hey, you did Nemo, right? When was that? And I was like, oh, man, I can't even do the math on that. It was like <laughs> 2004. Am I really? Oh, gosh. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Did I make you too old? I'm like, just go. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I just did that yesterday. But, um, yeah, that was 2004. And, uh, and I was, I think it was Nemo 6. And now I think they're up to Nemo 14 this year. And, um, and so yeah, that was, that was a, a really cool project. Um, the whole basis behind it is to, um, use, uh, a platform that already exists. Um, and, and there's a habitat that, that, that's under the ocean. It's about 65 feet deep and it's off the coast of Florida. And it's, um, owned by NOAA. And, uh, and marine biologists use it year round or at least seasonally to them, uh, as they live underwater in this underwater habitat for days or weeks and investigate and they go out and scuba dive all day and they investigate the coral reefs and then they come back into this underwater habitat. They basically live underwater for days and weeks. And the thing is that you fly too deep when you are scuba diving that deep, your body, your tissues become saturated with nitrogen. So to just come to the surface at any one given time would be a bad thing because all those nitrogen bubbles, as you ascend to the surface, they would want to kind of escape out of your out of your joint and which, your tissues, which could lead yes where you're going to decompress the thickness. Yeah. Bends. They call thing. it the bends. The bends, yeah. The bends, exactly the bends. And so what you become when you when you when you're down there for as long as they are, you, I think it's only it's maybe 12 hour period um, or less. Actually, your your tissues become saturated. So your saturation diving because they're saturated with nitrogen, and you can't come above 45 feet deep. So you have to say, you know, if you go above 45 feet, you risk the bend. So NASA um, uses this platform about once a year. They have agreements with NOAA to um, fund a mission where three astronauts or two astronauts and two scientists or engineers, four total, will go and, and, and perform a space analog mission uh, for anywhere from, you know, 10 days to two weeks, and they really want to do a long one, I know, a longer term. But they kind of use it as a, as an, a training and a learning experience, a simulation. 
uh, to get a feel for what and how these people and hardware and science might perform in the in the closed environment, extreme environment of something similar to the space station. And um, and so the unique thing about the Aquarius habitat, the name of the habitat underwater, is once you're saturated diving and you can't come above 45 feet, it's a 24-hour decompression protocol to be able to come home. So it's just like space station, you can't just readily just say, I've had enough and just come to the surface because that's detrimental. <laughs> so, so NASA likes it because of that extreme environment portion of it. And uh, when I went, I was uh, my role was the engineer. I went with uh, John Harrington, uh, Neil, uh, um, John Harrington, Doug Wheelock, and uh, Nick Patrick, who are my three astronaut crew members. And and we brought with us a suite of hardware experiments to test out. So it's kind of getting a feel for how these things might work, getting astronaut input, getting real day-to-day use. Obviously, there's no um, microgravity presence there. So we weren't testing function for microgravity, but most of, mostly like human factors and usability and and, and lots of different things. So we had, I think, about 10 different suite of, uh, pieces of hardware and, and experiments we were doing. And our mission was 10 days long, and um, and and we, we did a lot of team-building activities. Obviously, the, the astronauts used it for something different than what I used it for. They used it for gaining leadership experience and fellowship experience and just all these hands, different, different training for them. And for me, I got what I got out of it was how to be a better engineer. <laughs> Because it was it was a way for me to get experience on end to end testing of a piece of hardware and that I you know come up with conceptually put together and then actually took it to the astronauts in a simulated environment to see how these things would work and how the crew responded to them and um, so our mission was ten days and boy did I learn a lot about how to be a better engineer how to be a better thinker how to be a better designer and anticipate. Uh, my users, my end users who were the astronauts a lot better than when I went in. And it was a really valuable thing for me. And uh, it just changed the way that I uh, approached procedure writing and human factors. And it, I think overall it, it made my uh, my leadership uh, and my engineering skills, I think, a lot more sharper. So that was a really, really, really unique and super cool thing I got to do. <laughs> so how did your uh, piece of equipment fare? Oh, um, they did well. You know, we had all kinds of different um, pieces of equipment. Um, you know, these days, um, I'd say maybe a few of those are, are maybe one to two out of ten might be used on space station right now. Um, but since then, technology has overcome and advanced. And <laughs> so right. some of the technology that we used back then was certainly um, bypassed, you know, as of however many years ago that was. I'm afraid to do the math in my head. <laughs> um, but uh, but I think they did, they did great. We got really good feedback. Um, and so I think it was pretty successful. Now, these days, when they do a Nemo mission, so that was the early days. And these days, they actually bring out big, you know, like underwater robots, and they do these full, I think the last mission was something like a lunar mock-up scenario where they had, like, lots of big equipment, and they were out there and, and working it hard, and with lots of people. And so in my in my time, it was a lot more, it was smaller, it was more confined. And uh, the other the other, um, the other missions early on were doing things like looking at blood, changes in um, the immune system under stressful environments, and you know, changes in the bacterial growth in a closed environment. And so there was a little bit more science going on. Um, I think these days there's still some science tagged on to it, like the psychological components and things in the blood draws, but they're a lot more focused on exploration as well. Well, can you talk a little bit more about um, who goes up to the space station, how how long they're there, and, you know, again, I feel like a little ignorant. I keep thinking that unless we see a shuttle, you know, launch, 
which are usually <laughs> well televised, that nobody's going up into space. But, you know, you've talked about the unmanned ones going on a fairly regular um, basis. And these yeah. manned ones must be going up there as well to get people, bring them back down safely, and then bring the next crew up. Can you talk about the cycle of that a little? Sure. Um, so the crew, anyone, um, so at any one point, there can be a maximum of six crew members on orbit. And um, at any one point, the minimum would be about three. And usually the way that works out is of the six, oftentimes there are about two to three Russians, and the rest of the crew members can be a representative in, in any number, from NASA or the European Space Agency, or the Japan Exploration, uh, Aerospace Exploration Agency, or um, Canada, uh, the Canadian Space Agency. So, uh, so, so it can be a mix of any number at any one period of time. Usually there will be at least one NASA and at least one Russia and then everything in between. <laughs> and so, um, usually a crew member will stay for anyway, usually around six months. Um, there's a little window I would say to stay longer before their health becomes a uh, concern. You know, in a critical situation, um, they could potentially stay a few months longer, but then NASA has these rules where they say, well, we're not sure what, has, what happens with the body here, so it's time to bring that person home. And so, um, so, so they do their rotations about every six months. So, um, the Soyuz vehicle that sends our, sends our astronauts and our cosmonauts up and brings them home can fit three people at a time. So when three people go up on a Soyuz, uh, that vehicle will usually stay parked for a number of months, and at any one time there are, I believe, two um, two Soyuz vehicles always dock the space station as rescue vehicles too. So it's a rotational period where um, one will fly up, another crew will come home, down in another one. So there will be between two and three docks, depending on if the new crew just got there and we're doing a swap out. Um, and uh, so three will go up, and then three will come home, a different three. And and it's not exactly the same three that go up together that come home together. You know, they may have different periods that overlap, and it all depends on the launch schedule. But for the most part, for a maximum of months, they'll stay. Wow. And has anybody been up more than once? Oh, yes. Um, I believe there are two or three NASA astronauts that I can think of who have been up more than once on space station. One was Peggy Whitson, and she's a PhD who uh, was actually a female commander on space station. And um, she's now the chief of the astronaut office. She's been up twice, I believe. And then um, I believe Mike Fink was another astronaut who's been up twice. We're about to, um, I hope I'm not forgetting anyone. I'm sure I am. But we're about to, uh, Don Pettit is scheduled to launch soon. Uh, and he, this will be his second uh, stay on space station as well. Okay. I, I can keep asking questions all night, so you guys <laughs> jump in if you have more. But I wanted to ask, I, I've noticed you are really specific in calling it space station rather than the space station. Is there <laughs> a, a language reason for that? Yeah, I think it's just affectionate. I, it's hard to say. Okay. Uh, the space station to me is just so formal. Uh, and so internally, I think, you know what, no one's ever asked me that question, but internally, I think the lingo is space station, as we talk about it, space station. It's kind of, uh, probably just an affectionate name, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> a good catch. It almost sounds like English, the way they talk about going to hospital rather than going to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, yeah, that's quite interesting, yeah. I like it, though. I like it. <laughs> <sighs> Anybody else want to jump no, in? Did I, we, we we broke down a whole bunch of questions. I think we hit. I, a I covered all the stuff. I think we, we yeah we today. covered all the all my questions. That, I asked mine. Yeah. 
great. So we, we did an article the other day about a, um, a fake ad about Domino's delivering to the moon and have, <laughs> having a setup. And we read that Pizza Hut actually set up a pizza. Were you involved in that project at all? Or is that even true? <laughs> no, I, you know, it Kimberly, probably is true. Kimberly, I, I she's just, involved in the astronaut's health. Right. She wouldn't send a pizza to him. <laughs> the, the food labs would have been involved in the pizza part. But, uh, but uh, I'm not surprised. And, in fact, we've, we've sent up ice cream. Uh, and, you know, we sent up ice cream a couple of times. And every time the crew requests ice cream, we all get spun up because it's like, more paperwork to have to process and <laughs> we have to move things around and it gets all nothing nutty and crazy and the engineers go for over ice cream you know and so uh so i can't imagine what the pizza might have done uh but uh but we have protocol for ice cream pizza not so sure <laughs> well they had said that they they couldn't send pepperoni up they had used salami because the pepperoni didn't make it through the containment process <laughs> you know what? I'm not surprised. I see what it does to the boxes it's delivered to at my house, so I think it's a little too. <laughs> That's an interesting question, though. What what is? I mean, if something is going up to the space station, how what 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 is the process um, to send something like that up there? Uh, to send a food item, or uh, yeah, food item. What what would be the process? Yeah. You know, normally. Um, Normally, the crew gets to decide what the, they go, they go into the food lab at Johnson Space Center, and they get to sample all the different foods available, and the foods will be either like dehydrated form, or canned irradiated form, um, or, or like a powdery mix, soup or a drink, and they'll get to go and pick from a menu that they, they get to taste and try everything, and then, um, they'll be packaged, for, that'll be packaged for their launch, and each, uh, crew gets a color code, and so each thing that they choose, it's labeled with their color-coded dots. So it's kind of like when you write your name on your food item and you stick it in the, the freezer at work, don't touch, this is mine. You know, Tara's, Tara's lunch, you know. <laughs> so they, they get their food assigned to them, and so they know what's theirs when they get on orbit. And um, and then occasionally, in some of the vehicles, uh, they'll send fresh fruit as well. So I understand that fresh fruit is a treat, but obviously isn't something they get pretty regularly if the vehicles are only visiting every three to four months. Right. Um, but, but yeah, I remember hearing last year it was a big deal when they got oranges, and so I think any time they get fresh food, it's exciting. Has there been any, uh, you know, I was I was seeing a news article the other day about a woman uh, down on the South Pole expedition who needed to get out um, quickly, and they, you know, there was all this complication getting people out. Have there been any kind of medical emergencies that, um, really affected crew and, and, and required to get somebody off of there quickly or have, has anything like that happened? You know, to my knowledge, to my knowledge, that has not happened. Um, and I'm thinking back as far as I can think and I'm trying to think, you know, there are, there have been instances of, you know, close calls or certain anomalous things health-wise happening. Sure, there's skin rashes and there are, viruses that are reactivated by being in state. And so there are health happenings that occur. I don't think there's been anything um, that has caused a crew member to have to come home early. And if they have, then they sure did a good job about integrating it nice and quietly because I, I'm I'm not aware of that. Which is a good thing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, um, you know, during the... the talk you did over at the Botanic Gardens, you talked a lot about how the space station is really um, owned by, obviously, it's an international space station, um, but I found it really fascinating, the talk you did about uh, the congressional, I guess it was an act, oh. if, is, am I yeah. right, that, that's uh, uh -huh. to keep it open? Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, so in 2005, Congress mandated, um, in the NASA uh, Authorization Act, mandated U.S. assets of the space station as as a national, a formal national laboratory. And um, mostly, and, and national laboratories exist all over the U.S. and they're they're mostly associated with the Department of Energy, and they are basically a designation that are given to certain laboratories with, with fabulous capabilities that should be shared with America, with scientists, other other government agencies, academia, commercial, just get the most use out of those facilities. So in 2005, Congress actually designated Space Station a U.S. national laboratory, which is a pretty bold move. And um, so what this means is there there is a, a sector an office that's been in NASA um, is now run by a nonprofit organization. As of July, um, they're going to run that 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 component of the National Laboratory for NASA. And um, what the National Lab Act means is that NASA ha- can and has gone out and um, made agreements with commercial industry, academia, other universities, um, other government agencies like the National Institute of Health and the National Science Foundation, the Department of Defense, the USDA, um, agreements for them to use a station platform for whatever it is their agency's purpose is for. So NASA's goal, NASA's actually, and the big picture for NASA right now, our mission is to advance space exploration. Our, so, our foremost mission is not to benefit the people of Earth, <laughs> to advance space exploration. And, and a lot of people are surprised when, when they hear that because we get so many benefits that obviously affect us on the Earth's space. But right now, NASA's goal is advanced space exploration. But the National Lab Initiative is to bring back benefits from space to Earth. So all of those who are participating in the National Lab effort are actually tasked to do so to bring benefits back to Earth. And another difference between NASA research and National Lab research is that NASA funds researchers, scientists, um, it gives them research money to advance NASA's mission for space exploration. Um, but the National Lab component requires those participating entities to bring their own research funding to the table. So we'll let you use the space station and we will launch it for you and we'll integrate it all for you. But you have to fund your own research. And by the way, we'd like to leverage off of what you learned too because whatever you learned to benefit Earth is definitely going to help us uh, learn more about space exploration too. So any any company or, or university or um, other government agencies that use National Labs sign space act agreements with NASA and there are different levels of agreements as to what data can be shared and what what can't. Um, but because some companies like that proprietary edge, um, there's a commercial company right now called Astrogenetics, and they have actually been sending um, s- uh, different bacterial samples to space station in an effort to advance their vaccine development work. And um, NASA had found years ago, an early part of space station, that when you launch microbes to space, like bacteria and viruses, most of them, but not all, but most, become more aggressive and more virulent. And so just nasty. And um, so when NASA reported those results, we did so because we wanted to know what this meant for the crew on orbit, the health of the crew in this closed environment. And so we published those results, and the, the, this other company leveraged those results and thought, hmm, I wonder if we can use space station microgravity environment to accelerate our research and development efforts for vaccine development. So what they have done since then is brought their own research funding to the table, signed Space Act agreements with NASA to launch uh, their hardware into uh, to the space station. And what they've found is uh, they've launched salmonella, and okay. one of the things that they've launched is salmonella, which is the bacteria that causes food poisoning, and it's awful, not awful. Right. And there's obviously right. no cure for that, uh, which you've had it, you just got to wait it out and pray for the best, you know. 
I wonder why hasn't anyone solved this problem yet? But so uh, astrogenetics has basic salmonella identified the genes that control that virulence and a couple of other factors that control the aggression of salmonella mm-hmm. and have been able to uh, develop a vaccine against salmonella. And they're in the early FDA approval process right now as an investigational new drug. And, mm-hmm. and anyone may know that once you start the FDA process, it could take years and years and yeah. years before you actually see anything, if you can even cross that so-called valley of death and take them to the market. But they've at least had success initially with salmonella and they've since launched MRSA, which is the antibiotic-resistant staff that run ran, runs rampant in hospitals and afflicts mostly the elderly and the very, very young cancer cells from that. Um, and and they've also, um, uh, there's all the, there's another commercial company, uh, well, uh, uh, actually a company out of the University of Arizona that's looking at um, the pneumonia bacteria, uh, some of the bacteria that causes pneumonia. So, that, so it's kind of a neat thing because uh, these national labs Companies who've got their own funding, they don't have to. They don't have to really tell us any specifics if we agree to that. Um, some of them may just tell us, you know, leave us alone. It's proprietary. We'll tell you the very top level, but don't ask for more. And maybe that's what we sign up to. And and then in the end, that our benefits obviously can come back. So so there are all different levels of agreements and all different types of research and different drives for that kind of research within the national lab effort. Yeah, the salmonella one was interesting. I was reading about that earlier today as well. And I yeah. I, I, well, yeah. Well, we are, we've definitely got an hour worth of recording yep. here. Yeah, this has been <laughs> awesome. Yeah, thank yep. you. Yeah, this, this has been great. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes. Oh, you're very thank welcome. You. Thank you for taking time out of your evening, Tara. Hey, man, it's always fun to talk this stuff. I, I just, anytime anybody asks me to, I'm like, sure, what can I sign me up, you know? <laughs> That's <laughs> the great. The more people I can talk to about, the better, because um, it's just great to know you guys are interested and, and you are out there spreading the word for it, too, because we are, we are a small group in our office, so we count on you guys who who, who care about this stuff, yeah. obviously, as much as we do, and, and, and I think your whole podcast uh you know, idea is great, and uh, I think your topics are really fascinating. So you should keep up the good work too. Well, thank you. Our four <laughs> listeners will really appreciate that. <laughs> good. <laughs> I told her we had I'll more be, than four. You, <laughs> I'll be your fifth one. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, have you actually listened to our podcast? Uh, I've, I actually haven't listened to them yet, okay. but I actually just looked at the topics and well, things like that. So. You, you should be honored. We toned down the dick jokes just for you. <laughs> you, you toned down the, the what? The dick jokes. Oh. <laughs> we, 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 we buy, I know, exactly. Busted. I appreciate it. I think we almost crossed that line with the what stays and stays, what happens and stays, and stays. Yes, yes. You, you held it together really well. Well, you, we, we, this will be one of our very few clean podcasts. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I gotta back up and, and, and restate what I what I think about your podcast. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you might want to you might want to reconsider being any associated with us in any way. And he tells me at the end of his interview. Well yeah. of course I'm not gonna tell you at the beginning. That's the smart way to go. <laughs> no, I mean for the most part we 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 are very much, you know, um a very science oriented enthusiast podcast for sure wonderful good good that part i'll take and walk away with that yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right was there any other questions i think we're good for okay. that was good interview yeah. all right it was very enjoyable all right guys you have a great evening and contact me if you guys need anything else all right thank, thank you kimberly thank for the you. invite oh, oh thank okay. you for for the presentation you did and yeah when you said that in the in the presentation that you love talking about it i was like oh 
How cool would this be? So I'm, I'm really glad this got to work out. Me too. Fantastic. Thank you, Kimberly. That's, that's wonderful. I'll be happy to do it for anybody else, too. So just let them know. All right. We <laughs> right? will. All right, guys. All right. You have a great night. Thanks for the call. All right. Thank Good you. Night. All right. Take care. All right, guys. That was fun. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. For more information about the Amateur Skeptics, go to AmateurSkeptics.com. To send us feedback, suggestions, or big flaming insults, feel free to contact us at WTF at AmateurSkeptics.com. Other contact information can be found on our website. Music for this podcast was provided by OMG. For more information about OMG, go to their website at MySpace.com forward slash OMGHQ. The Amateur Skeptics Podcast is released under a Creative Commons share alike, no derivatives, 3.0 license. We'd love to have you share our work with other people. Please do not edit or change the file. Amateur Skeptics website, Facebook, and podcast album art is provided by and copyright Shadow Knight Digital Portraiture. Larger prints or custom pieces are available upon request. 